Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Unstyled. Season three won't debut until this coming fall. However, we hope this will be one of a handful of extra episodes leading up until then. So thanks for tuning in, and let's get on with the show. At just 17, Yara Shahidi has managed to cross more things off her bucket list than most of us probably will in a lifetime. She's charmed us on the hit television show Blackish, interviewed then Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, was named a 30 under 30 by Forbes, and most recently secured her own spinoff, Grownish, a refreshingly original sitcom that tackles real life new to college issues like how to handle an are you up text, plus lighter teachable moments like navigating adult deadlines and maintaining your hair without the hands of your lifelong stylist. Think Fleabag for Generation Z. But she isn't stopping there. While she's on the edge of voting age, she turns 18 this month, Yara's voice reaches far and wide. With millions of followers tuning in to her every call to action, she's become a role model for an age group on a constant quest for change. And offline, she's joined the 18 by 18 initiative, a civic engagement platform designed to get new young voters out to the polls, especially now with a midterm year upon us. But before she leaves her mark on Hollywood and Washington, D.C., more on that later, She's off to Harvard to double major in interdisciplinary sociology and African-American studies. Geez, feel old yet? So let's get started. Good morning, Yara. Good morning. Thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled today. Of course. Our super duper bonus episode. (laughs) Yeah. So you've kind of grown up alongside your character, Zoe. Definitely. On Blackish. But now that she's headed off to college in your new show, Grownish, you're going to have even more in common because you're heading off to college too. That's being worked out, my personal college schedule. But yeah, life imitates art, imitates life. I remember I was finishing my own applications when Kenya Barris, the creator of Blackish, called with the idea of what if Zoe goes to college. Why do you think he wanted to do it? Was it because of the history of college campuses being such an important place for protest, discussion, you know, reactions? I mean, multiple reasons. First and foremost, he has uh, children of his own and his oldest is headed off to college. And Didn't you go to school together? Mm-hmm. I went to school with uh, Kaylee Barris. And so she's headed off to college. I was already kind of um, talking about college and applying myself. And so what he's always loved is making sure that blackish, as exaggerated as it can be for the sake of comedy, is based in reality. And so the one thing that he wanted uh, to make sure was that my character was still allowed to grow. And he didn't know if it was as fully possible if we didn't discuss this side of her adventure, especially when you have a character that Mm. has been so independent from day one. Every other line, she's like, well, when I'm out of here. And so it was more so just such an appropriate way to continue the journey 
And also, again, like you said, college campuses are highly politicized and so much happens in terms of personal development, but also the development of one's opinion and like larger public self. It does sound like a cliche, but it is such a a moment of awakening because you're really distanced from this world that, you know, that has been your life for like the last 18 years. And you really are are forced to create this new identity. Mm-hmm. I know it may have been a shock for some people coming from Blackish in which she was possibly the most confident person other than Dre on the show. But moving into this new college environment, starting from the first moment you see Zoe on screen, she's unsure of herself. Because I think it was expected that she would go in with the same kind of energy as uh, she had in Blackish, but it's just not real. I mean, even watching my friends who are in college now, who have always been independent and self-assured, there's a certain moment that everyone goes through of realizing that this is a whole new environment that they have to maneuver And that you do not have the same support system that you did before in that you pretty much single-handedly have to deal with the consequences of your actions without having the family that protects you. There's also a really interesting relationship between you and your dad on the show. And it's like, I don't know, I felt like it was really symbolic of this sort of passing of the torch of like men to young women and really like believing that my daughter is going to change the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, the one thing about Zoe and Dre is I've always said that they are the same person. Like, quite honestly, I feel that's really, really, really interesting, especially right now with just the different narratives that are being exchanged between men and young women. Yeah, I've always personally felt that some of the times in which you see them butting heads is because they have the same type of energy. Fire and fire just gets more fire. Even though they have these similarities, which have been expressed throughout the seasons, I mean, Dre refers to her as the favorite child. And so there have been... Which is terrible, by the way. I know. But there have been those moments throughout the seasons. There is a sort of passing of the baton, and it's symbolic and also quite literal, even with Kenya giving me the platform of this show. It's um, a very literal transition of being uh, confident in a 17-year-old to carry a show. And being confident in a a group of young people, whether you think about how young our writer's room is and um, everything from the fact that we have a female DP, there's a passing of the torch in so many ways um, from blackish to grownish. That's really exciting. Yeah, in allowing um, new voices and new narratives because... The one thing that we've never shied away from is that Blackish is also Dre's narrative. Mm-hmm. We do tell everyone's story on the show, but it's through his point of view. And so it's different if Zoe were to have gone to college on Blackish because it would have been through his point of view and through his form of self realization versus then seeing this entire other person discovering her own journey. And there's a uh, there's m- more of a semblance of ownership of her story. Um, with with Gronish and with her having this other platform. What I love so much about Gronish is that you're able to weave in a lot of really heavy topics, a really lot of a lot of heavy realities that young people are facing and dealing with today. You know, whether it's Adderall or you know sexting or things mm-hmm. like that. Gronish definitely had a tonal shift, and so one of the most obvious differences is that depending on what time you turn on Gronish, it doesn't always feel like a comedy. There are long periods of time in which it isn't about 
making sure we hit that punchline joke. And it isn't about making sure that we follow the rule of three of set up, set up, set up, hit the joke um, kind of situation. Um, because what was most important to us was addressing the reality of the situation. And so whether it is those large storylines of Zoe um, and her messing with Adderall, or if it's the ones that we kind of weave in, whether it's through Nomi's character and discussing biphobia and uh, the LGBTQ community and then communities at large, or even the episode that we did in which we took a moment to kind of break down the NCAA and how these student athletes are being used um, in so many cases. And that's one of Gronish's strengths. So ultimately, getting back to the question, the tone has shifted, and so there aren't always moments of levity. And the one major distinction is that Zoe is not Yara, and these characters are not the same as the actors playing them. We have different prejudices. They're not perfect. They still have so many biases that we discuss. Mm-hmm. And even in talking about their form of activism, even the fifth episode in which there's just a conversation between Aaron and Nomi, you realize that our activism isn't always intersectional. And it's it was intentional because we didn't want that level of perfection. We wanted to see these characters working through and growing through this stuff themselves and not starting with this perfect base of a human. And it also allows for two different conversations to happen on and off the show with what I'm doing with 18 by 18 and what we're doing, what everyone's doing outside of the show with their personal platforms versus what's happening on the show, which I feel like really um, optimizes the space that we use in that we're able to discuss one thing on Wednesday nights and then personally say, but I'm concerned about voting. Zoe may not be. Zoe may be concerned with X, Y, and Z, which definitely many people relate to. But Yara is concerned with these other topics. And so there are moments in which Yara and Zoe collide, but so many moments in which we stay in separate places. I feel like you're Zoe's mentor. I feel like Yara is so is Zoe's mentor. She's kind of like the sitting <laughs> the on her shoulder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The super id. I don't know Zoe as well as you do, but I, I'd like to think that she's going to be voting. Oh, definitely. I'd, I'd like to think so, too. <laughs> um, but it that's the other journey you see her go through. She, on Blackish, has been fairly apolitical in how she weaves in and out of what the Johnsons talk about. Mm -hmm. Now, she always has an opinion. That has never failed us. But it usually stems from a more ideology-based kind of driven belief in that she talks about wanting to come from a place of love or wanting to care about her friends. And it's less about policy. It's less about this is what's happening in the news and more so about these larger beliefs that she holds. And so yeah. college, in many ways, almost forces you to become political whether you like it or not. Let's talk about 18 by 18. Yeah, so 18 by 18 in the short term is about midterms. It is about making sure that there is youth engagement in midterms. But the way we plan on achieving that is not by telling people how to vote, but giving um, my generation the resources needed to make those decisions. And so those resources come in, in many a form, whether it's this is how you register to vote. This is how you figure out where your polling place is. This is if you need to vote early. This is how you vote early. And having those conversations, but then having the bigger conversations about there's a lot of policy we're about to discuss. And the way we've kind of been fine-tuned is to focus on these larger elections. Even with the presidential election 2016, it was miraculous we got as many great local people as we did on the on the state level when, when uh, the, the presidential election took up the entirety of the news cycle. And so now that we're headed into midterms, 
we don't usually pay attention to our senators and congressmen and um, it's a lot of new information being introduced to us. So I found it important to make sure that we have some sort of semblance of connection between what we care about, who we care about, and how these policies affect us. So it may not affect me, but it may affect St. Cloud, Minnesota. Yeah. And it may not affect my family, or maybe it does, and I just don't know it. And finding ways in which we can get that information to the forefront of um, our generation. There was a study. Um, I remember looking at the results of the study before. It was during the Democratic National Convention. The number one reason why people didn't vote was because it was too confusing. A lot of times, you know, we kind of imagine voting in our own personal situations. I live in New York City. It's pretty easy for me to get to, a, you know, a polling station to vote. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people that live don't live in a big city, it can be more complicated. So I think that finding ways that we can be more supportive and more educational in a very sort of basic way, just creating an environment where people don't need to feel ashamed if they don't know where they have to go to vote. Right, definitely. I mean, even the one conversation that is often ignored is that so many people have nine to fives or hourly jobs that don't even give them the opportunity to go vote. The amount of people that still have to work on on voting day and don't have the the opportunity to the way voting is set up. It seems like an upper middle class hobby, if anything else, because we don't always give everyone the space, the time, the, the funds, the resources to make sure that you have the stabil job stability to go vote and make sure you have a job when you come back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today middle-class hobby that's really true I just want to shift gears for a second um, you grew up in Minneapolis uh, no actually uh, I moved to LA when I was four okay and it was actually for my papa's work he's a my papa it means dad in Farsi he's mm -hmm. a cinematographer, director, DP, and my mama is a commercial actress um, and businesswoman. And so... We're going to talk about your mom in a second. <laughs> yeah. So you don't really have a strong... You, you can't really maybe draw that strong of a comparison between the Midwest and Los Angeles. Um, I, I mean, Minnesota will always be my home. My grandparents are there. And uh, I, would, I, would, I would go back like two to three times a year before Blackish started for the state fair and for the corn festival and for all of it. What is the corn festival? Okay, it's so great. It's a festival of corn. It takes place in a cornfield. Um, and imagine a sandbox that is ginormous but filled with dried corn kernels. Like, Do you like dive in? You can dive in. Is into it like it. an Instagram moment? It totally. And I realize now that I'm thinking back on it, I was much smaller the last time I went. So I'm only imagining the sandbox of corn kernels is not as big as I imagined it to be. Um, I'm just realizing this now. Is it like multicolored kernels? No, just one color because oh, that's really? all you need. Just oh, okay. classic corn yellow. <laughs> <laughs> but there's kettle corn and grilled corn and popcorn. That sounds pretty awesome. It's great. Yeah. Maybe you should maybe you should bring that to Los Angeles in some way. Oh my goodness, would love to. We could do that with kale. 
So I met you really briefly at an event that we hold called 29 Rooms, and I met you really quickly, and I felt like a real dork because I went up to you and I introduced myself and told you how inspired I am by observing your relationship with your mom on your Instagram Has your mom been a really strong role model in your life? Definitely. Um, Ever since I was little, I don't think I realized until maybe middle school or high school that not everybody had the same kind of relationship with their parents and that there was a whole lot that had been normalized to me at such a young age that I realized was non-normal to other people, whether it was like... I have a mama with her master's in education and she speaks fluent Spanish and there's all of these other amazing things and is an entrepreneur. I just thought like, of course I can achieve this because I have 10 aunties who have done it. I've had a bubba who switched from physics to communications and is a photographer and has found success in being a creative. Like, of course I could take a passion and make it work. I have a cousin, um, who went to the space station. She came to my second grade classroom and talked to my classmates and showed a, she had a slideshow. Um, and so all my second grade classmates remember me with, as the, the girl who knew an astronaut. Wow. So it wasn't really until I hit that, that school age of being um, places where it's like, oh, not everybody's always sure of themselves. or But more than that, there are constant barriers between what we want to do and how we achieve it. And it, it took me a, a moment to realize that. And I think in realizing that, that's what's made me as um, passionate as I am about just the work that I do because I know the impact of living with those role models. I know the impact it's had on my idea of possibility. And so it is important whether I serve as representation or the work I do can expand representation in any sort of way. Um, It's really about opening opportunities to as many people as possible because it allows for just a, a more colorful existence in society. I know that you just signed on as an ambassador for Aerie, right? Yes. And an Aerie an mentor, Aerie right? Aerie role model. Yeah, mm-hmm. role model. And um, I think this is a nice segue talking about that. But, you know, for young women who don't really have that access to that kind of image um, mm-hmm. of success, whatever that may be, how do you advise women you interact with that you feel, you know, need that need that connection? I mean, I guess I would have to say the image always exists. It's about doing our research and finding it. And if for some weird reason it doesn't exist, creating a space in which it can. And so even starting from my uh, my personal obsession with James Baldwin, he's a, a role model of mine. And that came from reading a short story in ninth grade and then just wanting to do more research as to who he is. Or um, even the part of the reason I chose to go to Harvard is because the professors there are so prolific in their field and have expanded new ways of studying and have really revolutionized African and African-American history and how we learn it. And so um, while I think the importance of um, celebrity or media representation is integral in not only how we view ourselves but how society views us, there's also an underappreciated layer of um appreciating the daily heroes of Congress people and professors and authors and people that you may not see on your TV every day, but have made, I can promise you, a tangible impact on your life, whether you know it or not. And so 
a lot of it has been like I didn't watch much TV growing up and the TV that I watched was um Crash Box on HBO which was uh that show about math mm-hmm. and um Time Warp Trio which was about three kids traveling through history and that was a cartoon and that was intentional like not watching a ton of TV. Oh yeah, I watched like an hour on Saturday, but it was on, TV was off Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And uh, which really forced us to look outside in the world and being interested in history. I was constantly learning about people like King Jenga, who was a female, and she led her empire to success. And she had to take on the role that was theoretically assigned to males and even take on a, a masculine term in order to be taken seriously. But looking at people that span back before common era there are so many examples of women of people of color of um the lgbtq community even of immigrants really pushing those barriers and so i i always say turn to history because um as cyclical as history is there are always those inspiring outliers and i find it super integral to know where we come from and who we come from And also looking at those people, you referred to them as outliers, but the ones that intentionally pushed against the conventions that Mm -hmm. were sort of imposed upon them when it wasn't popular, when it wasn't safe. And I think that, you know, finding the courage to do that. And I think this is one of those times that we're living in right now where I think a lot of people are being, you know, sort of asked to step up and be an example Mm -hmm. of just the truth. So even with... The campaign, even with something as simple as no retouching in such a large campaign, it's it's one of those situations in which you realize how normalized it's been to airbrush our quote unquote flaws and how it's created a society in which it's it's not okay to have stretch marks or to have bumps or to have X, Y, and Z, whatever it may be. And so to even be a part of a campaign that has committed to saying like, no, this is what we, we really look like. And let's more than... And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. There is no one classification for beauty or acceptability no. or anything like that. No, I think it's incredibly brave and setting that kind of example in an industry that's so competitive right now. And I think those are the companies that will thrive in the long term. Because it's about undefining things is, I guess, how I like to phrase it. A lot of times we live in a day and age of redefining. And while I thoroughly appreciate it, the definition of definition is to specify And Mm -hmm. when you specify, somebody is always left out. And so what these campaigns are doing and what these companies are doing is undefining and breaking down the barriers that say this is what's in, this is what beauty is. And rather than saying we are redefining beauty, we are just making it such a large, vast concept that everyone can fit under it. You also made a really funny comment about your theory about fashion. It was like fashion was okay with you as long as you were able to do the robot. (laughs) Yeah, the robot test. (laughs) The robot test, yeah. As long as you're able to really do a good robot, then Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's it's a consideration. Yes. Uh, Who taught you the robot? My brother. Okay. I have two brothers, and so it was the the currently uh, 14-year-old brother who taught me the robot Um, because he's always been a great dancer. But the robot test came about because I realized that a lot of, fashion for me is being able to be comfortable because you have more ownership of yourself when you're comfortable. Um, 
versus constantly being hyper aware of how the clothes fit on you. Half of my wardrobe are political t-shirts and jeans. So many times we step into places in which you're having to dress for other people and how other people see you. If you, if you want to be a businesswoman, you have to wear this. If you want to be viewed as this, then you have to wear this. And there's a correlation between what you wear and how people perceive you. And I, I am hoping and what I'm seeing is that is slowly disintegrating because um, we live in such an unorthodox generation, but in a time in which everything's being revolutionized and restructured so that the idea of what a businesswoman is is not um, created by outward appearances, but by or the Or looking work. like a man. Right. Because that's the only image of power. Oh, we, we have to talk about one more thing. Yes. Refinery29 launched a short film series called Shatterbox last I'm year. I'm very familiar. Yeah, and um, we launched with, you know, first-time directors like Kristen Stewart and Chloe Sevigny and Gabourey Sidibe. And I am just so grateful to you for coming on board and being one of our directors for season two. I am so happy to be a director. It's been so exciting. Oh, good. And is this this is your first time directing directing a film, correct? Yes, I directed a spec spot a uh-huh. while ago, but this is my first film that I also conceptualized. So, what can you tell us about it? Um, well, it's called X, and originally it was just the um <laughs> the, the letter that we put in until we found a name and mm-hmm. it ended up becoming the name because there's this idea that X being a variable, we wanted to keep it open so that everyone can relate to X and the, the larger concept that everyone is X. And so it is the story of a a young um, person as they travel through Los Angeles and really about how the environment that they're in affects them. On the most basic level, the story that we're trying to express is about what it's like to maneuver through space that you don't own. Is it science fiction-y? Um, science fiction in one aspect in that the character does morph, but mainly based in reality and based in Melrose and Fairfax. And so even though it is, um, there are many things that make it L.A. specific, the overarching story is our aim is to be as universal as possible. Yara Shahidi, I want you to be my mentor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still figuring my life out, so I don't know how much help I could be. Well, you and your mom together. Thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled today. It's been such a pleasure, and I've learned so much, and I could just talk to you for days and days. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. I hope you're inspired after hearing Yara's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbreck. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be super grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Sarah Bernard, associate produced by Rebecca Easley. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Unstyled just as much as we've enjoyed making it for you. And we'll see you back here for more extra episodes soon.